You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is Ralph McInerney again, and we are now beginning our second lecture of six on metaphysics. We spoke in the first lecture in an introductory fashion about how metaphysics sits within the panorama of philosophy as we get it from Aristotle. You see it as kind of a culminating science, a divine science, the knowledge of the highest thing. And we ended by saying some critical things about a very dominant approach to the metaphysics of Aristotle during our own century, which has fortunately now waned, sometimes, as I said, because people got just weary of it. But it also can be set aside in terms of the problem and to show that there is no textual basis for having the kind of division or dichotomy in the text of Aristotle that was suggested. In this lecture, I want to talk to you about the presuppositions of metaphysics. And you might think, well, you've already been doing that. You've been telling us about what comes first and the various things that have to be done before one can undertake this particular science. But I want to do that, as you'll see, in a somewhat different way now. To talk of philosophy in the way in which I did last time, as the comprehensive term, as the term that covers, comprehends all human knowledge, will strike you as perhaps a little bit bizarre. If you go through a university, uh, college of arts and letters, let's say, of a major university or a minor university, you find one department called philosophy department. And it's up there with history and economics and various other disciplines. And it looks to be just one department among others. And you talk to students and you find that there's some are majoring in English, some in history, some in sociology, and some in philosophy. So it looks to be a special kind of thing among other special things and no longer functions as an umbrella term for everything whatsoever. This is a fairly recent origin. Not too long ago, people who finished the maximum degree in one of the sciences received, what, a PhD. And a PhD is what? A doctor philosophiae, a doctor of philosophy. So people who were advanced in knowledge of physics or astronomy, chemistry, were called doctors of philosophy. And this was a carryover of the notion that philosophy is an umbrella term. Again, it covers all these different disciplines. It isn't just one discipline among many. And of course, in Newton, Newton thinks he's doing what? Philosophia naturalis, the principles of natural philosophy. Newton's back a ways, whereas the use of PhD rather than doctor of science as the ultimate degree in colleges of science, that change is relatively recent. So we do have at least vestigial notion of philosophy as a name for everything. Phi Beta Kappa, of course, would be another indication of that. Philosophia Bio-Kubernetes, philosophy, the guide of life. So here, too, people get Phi Beta Kappa keys, whether or not they're in philosophy or some other discipline. There, too, we might say, there is a retention of this notion of philosophy as comprehensive. But of course, something has happened since the time of Aristotle, since the time of what we might call the hegemony of philosophy, philosophy as the name for every intellectual pursuit. 
And an image that is often used to describe what happens is this. Philosophy was this huge landmass, and pieces of it began to break free and to float free and to constitute little autonomous islands of their own. And in this way, over time, the various sciences broke free from philosophy and constituted themselves as distinct, independent, autonomous sciences. They no longer are linked to this landmass, which of course is eroding, eroding, eroding. The human sciences, sociology, history, and so forth, these break away until the question arises, what's left? What's left? And one of the ways in which people talk about metaphysics is, well, it's what's left when everything else leaves the room, the philosophical room, when all the other sciences have metamorphosed into independent and autonomous discipline. Nobody wants metaphysics, so it's what's left, and that's what philosophers do, because nobody else wants it. And sometimes it's used as the kind of overview science in the sense that if you look at the catalog of uh, philosophy departments, you'll find courses listed such as philosophy of art, philosophy of history, philosophy of science, philosophy of religion. And it's as if the philosopher is the policeman of all these disciplines, and he's looking over the shoulder at them and, and talking about them in some way different from the way in which they might talk about themselves. And sometimes that's what we mean by metaphysics, this sort of pushy intrusiveness on the part of the philosopher looking over other people's shoulders and describing what they're doing, a kind of ambulance chase, you might say, after people who have a discipline with a subject matter. And in our own century, it was fashionable among some Anglo-American philosophers to say that philosophy is distinguished from all the other intellectual disciplines in that it doesn't have a subject matter. Its subject matter is all the other sciences, and it just kind of looks at them from a methodological point of view or from a logical point of view or from a linguistic point of view, and it has things to say about them that they probably wouldn't want to say about themselves. So there has been, despite this erosion, of the great landmass of philosophy and the constitution of all of these autonomous disciplines, so much so that now when you look at a modern university and you see all the departments, all the colleges, all the different disciplines within the colleges, it's rather difficult to know how they're supposed to relate to one another. The term university is still retained to suggest there is some center around which all of these things are turning, but you couldn't get two or three people in a university who would be in agreement as to what in the world that might be. Finally, what we suggested is it's a good investment. It will enable you to earn a better income if you have a college degree. I'm being cynical. But it is difficult nowadays to get any sustained sense or any agreement among people who are engaged in higher education as to what they're engaged in over and above their particular discipline. That is, how do they relate to one another? So philosophers have volunteered, whether to the pleasure or not, of the objects of their attention to look at other disciplines and talk about their interrelations and so forth. And this, we might say, is a kind of vestigial remnant of what metaphysics was in its Aristotelian and medieval heyday as the great ordering discipline, as the goal towards which everything else tended and which consequently was the principle of their being ordered to one another and to that ultimate goal. There's some very diminished sense of that, perhaps, in this notion of philosophy of X, philosophy of Y, and so forth, where we fill in those variables with the names of one of the other sciences. 
If this were the case, if philosophy is reduced to metaphysics in this diminished sense of the term, then of course to begin the study of philosophy would look to be to begin the study of metaphysics. And I want now to talk about the placement of metaphysics in our study. Everything I've said up to this point would indicate that classically, that is from an Aristotelian or a Thomistic point of view, the study of metaphysics is going to come last and all other disciplines will have to be studied beforehand. But when one says that in the 20th century and you ask, what are all these other disciplines? Well, they're mathematics, they're physics, they're biology, they're psychology and so forth. And they look as if they're doing business on their own. And if you were going to study those, you wouldn't be doing that in the philosophy department. So once more, students of Thomas now and Aristotle have proposed that metaphysics in the present order of things is where we begin because there really isn't much else to begin with in philosophy. The natural sciences have taken away what Aristotle thought was the philosophy of nature. Mathematics was fairly independent even at the time of Aristotle. What's left? What's left? Well, we might say the ethical sciences or the moral sciences, but down the hall from the philosophy department, you're going to run into political science. You're going to run into maybe someone doing business ethics in the business school. So these disciplines, too, don't seem to fall any longer within the purview of philosophy. Noticing all this, a kind of failure of nerve came over students of Thomas, and they no longer were able to, in any persuasive way to themselves or as they thought to others, to maintain that there are these series of disciplines that have to be learned if one is going to learn metaphysics, and one has to go through them systematically and in a pedagogical order. Again, each time you would name one of those sciences, it seemed to be located in some other department and not in philosophy. So what was the philosopher as philosopher to do? Out of this, many students of Thomas argued that you can begin with metaphysics. Despite the things that we mentioned last time and have repeated now, you can begin with metaphysics. You don't have to think of it as something that comes at the end of the line. And there have been many great Thomists, the man looking over my shoulder here, Jacques Maritain. One of his early books was called Great Thomas, one of the great figures of the Thomistic revival. One of his early books was called The Degrees of Wisdom. And in it, he lines up a kind of hierarchy of wisdoms, the wisdom of the natural sciences, of metaphysics, of theology, and the wisdom that is the gift of the Holy Spirit so that you get a panorama, there is a place for metaphysics within this. It's not where you would begin, however. But later on in his life, after the Second World War, he wrote a book, Existence and the Existent. And then, like many other followers of Thomas, he seemed to want to say, well, look, we can talk about things as beings, and this is to talk about them differently from the way in which they're spoken of in biology or in history or what have you. And this gives you the special angle of approach that is philosophy. And as a matter of fact, it is metaphysical. So by dint of some kind of intuition of being or some kind of immediate grasp of being, we would have the wherewithal to do what it is that Aristotle and Thomas were doing in what they call the metaphysics. This is a very widespread view. It's tied to the dilemma or the difficulties that seem to be raised for any philosopher by the rise of the sciences. What has happened to my subject matter? 
One of the great schools of the Thomistic Revival at the University of Louvain simply used metaphysics as an umbrella term and would talk about special metaphysics, that's metaphysics as we have been talking about, and then general metaphysics, which would be the metaphysics of nature, the metaphysics of thinking, the metaphysics of this, the metaphysics of that. So that metaphysics became the umbrella term. So obviously, if you started philosophy, you were going to start with metaphysics. So that's one suggestion, that while pedagogically, as we saw in Aristotle and in Thomas, metaphysics would come last, given all of the cultural and intellectual changes that have intervened, you find many people now suggesting that, well, we can start with it because we can have an immediate intuition of being or experience of being, which is sufficient basis for having a science of being as being. This is, of course, an extremely difficult question as to whether or not you can just begin with metaphysics, begin philosophy with metaphysics. I think that it is a mistaken suggestion. I think it confuses two senses in which we can say the human mind grasps being. On the one hand, it's possible to say, well, what else do you know when you know being? Or when you know anything, you know that it is a being. This doesn't look to be anything like an achievement. Whatever you know is a being, and that seems reasonable enough. So that if you're going to have a science of being, you might say, it's available right there. Let's just begin. What this overlooks, I think, is a distinction that was rather carefully made by such scholars, such interpreters of Thomas as Cardinal Cajetan, the great Dominican of the 16th century, who had a diplomatic career as well, not a very successful one. He was the man that the Pope sent up to talk with Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation with the hope of reconciling Luther with the church. That was an unsuccessful mission. Cajetan was a great interpreter and explainer of the thought of Thomas Aquinas. In the Leonine edition of the Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas, the editors include in the volumes the commentary of Cajetan along with the text of Aristotle, a singular place of honor for a commentator on Thomas Aquinas. He also commented on other works of Thomas and Aristotle, as well as every book of the Bible. He was a great biblicist at the end of his life. The commentary that he wrote on a little work of Thomas called On Being and Essence, which you will not find the commentary, but you'll find that work in this reader that I prepared for Penguin Book. The commentary that Cajetan wrote on that in the Paramium, the preface to his commentary on Being and Essence, he makes a distinction which is of crucial importance for the matter of where or when can we begin the study of metaphysics. And it's a distinction between being as what we first know and being as being, which is the subject of metaphysics. And Cajetan is very insistent, and I think rightly so, that it's fatal to think that you can identify those two. Why? Metaphysics, as we saw from the beginning, has a term suggests something beyond the physical, beyond things that come to be as the result of a change. In order to have a science of being which would go beyond just the study of physical beings, which are of course being, you would have to have reason to hold that to be and to be material are not identical. And as long as you cannot show that they are not identical, any study of being is going to be a study of physical being. So in order for there to be metaphysics, a study of being that goes beyond the study of physical being, there has to be a proof 
that there exist things which are not material or changeable. Now, what do we mean? What does Thomas, what does Aristotle mean by a physical object? A physical object is something that has come to be as the result of a change. That's what the Greek word from which physica comes signifies, that which has been born. So too, the Latin term natural comes from nascor, nashi, natusum, the verb for to be born. So the metaphor here is the things around us, the things in this world are things that have come to be, come to be as a result of a change, which while they are, are constantly subject to change, of position, of quality, of quantity, and so forth, and ultimately will undergo that dramatic change whereby they simply cease to be. So the career of things in the physical world is to come to be, absolutely speaking, here is little Oscar, he didn't exist before, here he is, during his whole career he's going to be subject to changes of various kinds, growth, knowledge, temperature, and so on, and he's going to wither away eventually and die, and Oscar is no more. That's what a physical object is like. And the way in which Aristotle said we could minimally characterize such things as this, they are composed of a subject and a determination of that subject. That is, when something comes to be, the minimal principle that we have to invoke to talk about a change is something which from not having a certain characteristic comes to have that characteristic. That is, we have a subject, we have a denial or a privation of that subject, and then a new determination of that subject. Because of an example that Aristotle used, the terms that became canonical in talking about these components of a product of a change were matter and form. So that anything that has come to be as a result of a change, Aristotle would say, Thomas would say, is composed of matter and form. That is, the subject which as informed in a certain way, shape, organized in a certain way, gives us this kind of thing, a human being, a daffodil, what have you. Now, the matter of the thing, the subject of the thing, is its perpetual possibility for change. The subject, which is now a daffodil, the stuff that makes up a daffodil, can be the stuff of something else. So the matter of a physical object is its perpetual possibility of not being or being otherwise before it's not absolutely speaking, when it ceases to be absolutely speaking. So as far as we know, when we say that physical objects, to be physical or to be material and to be, are identical, what we're saying is, as far as we know, all things are of that kind. They have come into being, they're constantly subject to change, they will eventually pass out of being. Is there any other kind of being? Well, Aristotle, of course, did go to school to Plato. And he knew that Plato thought that the best things that there are exist independently of change and matter, and he had a number of arguments on that behalf. The Platonic notion of ideal forms of ideas is based on this assumption that real being is not material or changeable. Aristotle is attracted by that, and he eventually wants to be able to hold that, but what he is saying to us is this. He's saying we can't just assert that. And I don't think that the arguments that Plato advanced on behalf of there being immaterial beings are convincing. So we have to go back to the drawing board. And the only drawing board we have is to look at the realm of physical objects. What we're going to have to do is to see if it is possible on the basis of our study of physical objects 
to conclude that there are things which are not physical objects. And Thomas insisted on this as a propideutic, as a presupposition of doing metaphysics. In the course of doing the philosophy of nature, he said there are two arguments, two proofs, which open up the possibility of a metaphysic. And those proofs are, first of all, that which we find at the end of the physics of Aristotle for a prime mover. And that proof can be stated very schematically. Whatever is moved is moved by another. There cannot be an infinite series of moved movers. Therefore, there must be a first unmoved mover. Now, that proof doesn't wear its meaning on its face. It's a very difficult proof to understand. But if it works, what it does is to prove that there is something, a mover, that is not like the things in this world which are ultimately moved by it. It does not have within itself a matter as a composing principle. It cannot change. This is another word for God. This is a descriptive phrase for God, the unmoved mover. So if that proof works, this is the point, we have now in the course of studying physical objects, the premises of that proof are truths about the physical world. The conjunction of those premises yields a conclusion that there is something that escapes the confines of the physical world. Of course, it's saying you wouldn't have the physical world without that first unmoved mover. But here you have proof positive, if the proof works, of course, as Thomas thought it did, and as I think it does. If that proof works, you have a grounded conviction that there is something which is not a material object. So too in the De Anima of Aristotle, there is an argument on behalf of the immateriality of the human soul, the incorruptibility of the human soul. And it's a very elegant procedure that Aristotle uses. He uses the analysis of change that he's already come up with in the physics, subject to privation, a new form, and he uses that to talk about coming to see red. And he asked, well, what would the subject of that change be? What is the transition from not seeing red to seeing red? And you get the introduction of talk of sensation as receiving a form. And you could ask, where did that come from? It comes from seeing on an analogy with physical change and then saying, but it can't be exactly like it. Why? Because when I see red, there isn't another instance of red in the universe. It's not the same thing as an apple reddening, ripening, and becoming red when I see red. We don't say, well, that's one more instance we would have to count if we were in the business of counting instances of red. Seeing red is not that kind of a change. Thinking is even more so a case where a form is received in a way that is unlike the way in which a form is received in matter in a physical change. Out of this kind of analysis comes a controlled use of the term immaterial. It's a negation of something. So you have to know what it is that is being negated in order to have a firm purchase on what its meaning is. In virtue of these two arguments, that of the prime mover and that of the incorruptibility of the human soul, we have now grounded certainty that to be and to be material are not identical. And so there is the opening of the possibility of a science of being, which is not simply a science of physical being or of material being, of natural being. So this, for Thomas, was what in Aristotle permitted the rejoining of the outlook of Plato, but on a grounded basis. Like Plato, Aristotle is going to have a layered hierarchical world. There are physical objects and there are 
substances which exist separately from matter and from motion. And in metaphysics, we want to be able to say something about them and principally about the chief separated substance, namely God. So the opening is there and the possibility then of a science beyond the science of nature of natural things is possible. I want to say a little bit more about these two presuppositions of metaphysics for Aristotle and St. Thomas. Well, if it is indeed the case that for Aristotle, as Thomas reads him, before you can have a science beyond natural science, you're going to have to prove that there are things that are not natural objects. We can see that that is indeed what Thomas is saying Aristotle says, but we can wonder with the people that I mentioned at the outset of this lecture, whether that would still work in the world that we find ourselves. I mean, that makes it sound as if the physics of Aristotle and the de anima of Aristotle are still works which contain truths about their subject matter. And don't we live in the time centuries after the scientific revolution? And don't we realize that the whole of Aristotelian natural philosophy was thrown out the window? And it's simply ludicrous for us to be looking in the physics or in the de anima of Aristotle for some basis on which we could do metaphysics and the, in the traditional sense. It's well to feel the force of that objection because then one is not likely to dismiss in a cavalier fashion the people that I mentioned at the outset of this lecture, people who felt that, well, look, if we're going to have metaphysics, we're going to have to have a way in which we can just start it. And why not talk of an intuition or just the availability of being and get going? What stands in the way of that is that unless we know that there is something that isn't a physical or material being, all we are doing is talking about the beings that could be better described in terms of their physical characteristics. The range of the subject would not have changed at all simply because we use a vaguer term, being, to designate physical being. That's not an argument for there being beings other than physical beings. So we have to understand that when Aristotle introduces this, it's not that he is a skeptic or an agnostic or he's anti-theological and other things that he's been accused of being, as if he's indifferent to the aspirations of Platonic philosophy. I think it's more useful to see him as being guided by the objections that Plato himself raised to his metaphysical position, his ideas, as for example at the outset of the Parmenides of Plato, and seeing that those arguments, those standard Platonic arguments for a reality beyond the physical weren't convincing. So that what was needed was a firmer grounding for that kind of claim to be successfully made philosophically. And the panorama of philosophy, as Aristotle sees it, the need to begin with physical reality and then to move on the basis of certain proofs to a metaphysics is grounded in this sense that if you don't prove it, you're just asserting it. So it's not that he's turning away from that, but he's trying to put it on a firmer foundation in the way in which Plato, too, realized that it had to be put if we're going to survive philosophically. Having said all that, of course, we come back to the problem, but he does this in places that we would think of as now having been rendered obsolete by the advance of the sciences. And that, again, is why people would say, well, whatever they thought, we can't think that anymore because. So the question has to become, what are we to make of philosophical 
claims about the physical world. That is, is it the case that all of our knowledge of the physical world is going to be a matter of sciences as we now think of them? So that any true or firm knowledge of the physical world would have to be gained by the sciences as they've developed, and any effort to talk about it in any other way would have to be consigned to the dustbin of history, to that obsolete Aristotelian way of doing things and so forth. This is a big subject, but as you can see, the point that I'm raising here in the second lecture makes it necessary to say something about it. What is the status of the philosophy of nature? If the approach I'm putting before you is going to fly, if we are going to pursue this matter guided by Aristotle and St. Thomas, we are going to have to have a justification of the philosophy of nature, because without the philosophy of nature, no metaphysics. Is it possible to justify anything like the philosophy of nature? This is one of the topics that has been addressed, or was at least, up until about 20, 30 years ago, was addressed by just about anyone who was interested in following the thought of Thomas Aquinas. When I was young, there were a variety of rival theories as to how it was that you could put together philosophical analyses of the natural world and the analyses that we find in physics as it's been developing and continues to develop. And these rival theories were very interesting, but by and large, the ones that interested me most were those that were trying to retain this conception of philosophy such that the terminal interest of philosophy, metaphysics, reposes on arguments that are made in our knowledge of the natural world. Now, there is another possibility here, of course, and some philosophers have pursued this. Maybe the sciences of nature, as we now talk about them, maybe they provide us with a basis on which we can say the physical objects or the things that make up the physical universe do not exhaust reality. And as you may know, people talk about the Big Bang in this way as if, ah, here we have within astronomy a way of talking about a first cause, a god, and so And this will do service for what Aristotle was trying to do when he came up with a proof for the prime mover. Other people will say that's fanciful and very character of natural science is such that it cannot admit within its consideration something that doesn't fit within its considerations, that is, a non-physical object. Probably the best barefoot way to see that there is knowledge of nature which is not reducible just as such to the sciences in the kind of honorific sense that we give the term is to realize for a scientist to tell us what he's explaining, what his theory is meant to account for, he has to be able to refer to things in some way independent of and prior to the theory. That's a very complicated way of saying what Arthur Eddington, for example, said in a famous passage when he was asked as a physicist, when I look down at this podium, he wasn't looking at this one, but say I'm giving you a version of Eddington's remark, I look down at this podium and it's solid, the dimensions are given, it resists when I lean against it and so forth, fortunately. It is describable in those ways. And yet, as Eddington said, when I describe it as a physicist, suddenly it's just a swarm of things going on. The dimensions of the thing are changing in terms of gravitational pull and so forth. It's porous. It's as if my hand could just be plunged through it. It's more nothing than reality and so forth. 
And he goes on to give us, on the one hand, a physicist's account of the podium, on the one hand, and what your carpenter or a furniture dealer would tell you about this podium. And then Eddington asked the crucial question, which is the real podium? And that's the kind of question that I think bothers people when they think that science deprives us of any alternative way of talking about the world. And here we have one of the greatest physicists saying, now wait a minute, what my physical account is an account of is the podium as it is normally known, as we talk about it in ordinary discourse. It's not as if the physical description of the podium does away with the ordinary language podium. It is absolutely dependent upon it as an explanation is dependent upon the thing to be explained. So we have here, in this kind of thing, one could multiply instances of this where people point out that, of course, there has to be some kind of pre-scientific grasp of the world in order for science to have something to explain for it to take off from. And we could say, all right, given this opening, what we have to ask ourselves is, is it possible to regard the philosophy of nature as we find it in Thomas and Aristotle as bearing on this pre-scientific knowledge. Not a rival of it, not meant to replace scientific knowledge, but a close analysis of that which science seeks to explain. And the explanations, of course, succeed one another rapidly sometimes over the history of science. But there are constantly efforts to explain what can be talked about in an antecedent way, and perhaps that antecedent explanation is something that being as pre-scientific and as general as it would be, survives in the way in which a particular scientific account would not. That is one possibility, and in terms of that, one can go back to what I said characterized the philosophy of nature for Thomas and Aristotle, and that is asking about the minimal characteristics or requirements of things that have come to be as a result of a chain. Obviously, this is to proceed at a level of great generality. One is hoping to say things which, if true, would be true of any physical object whatsoever, regardless of their many differences from one another. You would be looking for an account which covered them all, was comprehensive. And as a matter of fact, Aristotle thought that is the natural way in which the human mind proceeds. We begin with generalities and only gradually move in the direction of specificity. So it would make all the sense in the world that in a work like the physics of Aristotle, what we have is a first very general, very comprehensive study of things that have come to be as a result of a change, ta fusica, and once that had been gained, one then would move on to ever more specific inquiries. That is the difference between living physical objects and non-living physical objects and so on. And in terms of the historical development that I've been alluding to, one can say, well, maybe it's as one moves on in to these more specific inquiries that one sees that there would be a parting of the ways with Aristotle, but not at the very beginning. And it may very well be that one could say this analysis of physical objects, which has produced a very powerful vocabulary for Thomas throughout philosophy and into theology, is something that survives. 
In short, I would point out that despite the undeniable and wonderful advances in the physical sciences, it is possible to argue that there is still an analysis of the physical world which is antecedent to those sciences and which analysis might actually be more permanent than the very particular and complicated scientific theories which succeed one another with such rapidity. It's not, of course, a matter of saving at all costs a position that was held in the 4th century BC or in the 13th century. It's rather that one would be compelled by the truth of the matter and seeing that, yes, we have an access to the physical world that is prior to and presupposed by the physical sciences, and it is possible to argue, and I would argue, that an analysis of this physical world as it's given to us in that pre-scientific fashion can yield the kinds of analyses and proofs, arguments that are necessary if metaphysics, in the sense that we're pursuing it, is going to be possible. So while one would not only acknowledge but applaud the advances in the physical sciences, one doesn't want to, I think, be too quick to agree that this has rendered everything that was said about the physical world prior to the advance of the sciences obsolete. When we notice obsolescence in the history of science, it usually has to do with previous very sophisticated scientific theories, the inadequacy of which is recognized and they're replaced. Whatever theory we have of the advance of science, paradigm shifts or whatever, those changes are very dramatic and clearly visible. But if Eddington's passage has the bite for you that I hope it will have, you can see that these theories which succeed one another are initially at least attempts to explain the world which is available to us in ordinary fashion. Okay, so I'm suggesting that philosophy of nature can be grounded in this pre-scientific, as we would call it, knowledge, and proofs can be gained in that area which ground metaphysics in the way in which it has to be grounded if we are going to say, I want to have a science of being which is not simply a science of physical being. How do I know there is any being that isn't physical being? I can't just say, I intuit it, I believe it, of course, but that doesn't count right off as a philosophical premise. I can't use, Aristotle is saying, I can't use the arguments that we used in the Platonic Academy, attractive and so forth as they are, because I don't think they work. Let's look at one of those. One of the presuppositions for our doing metaphysics, that is, in recognizing that there are things which are not material, is grounded on our conviction that the human soul does not corrupt at the time of death. Now, if you looked at Plato on the soul, Plato treats the immortality of the soul not by so much showing how it survives as by showing how it existed prior to its existence in the body. For Plato, the soul as an autonomous entity exists prior to the body. That's, so to say, its natural condition. And then it is imprisoned in the body with the result that it forgets all of the things that it knew in its antecedent or natural condition. And this life is just a long process of trying to remember the things that it knew, being reminded of them by their images and imitations in the world around us. And then when the moment of death comes, the soul is released and it goes back to the condition that is appropriate to it. 
And if one has lived an appropriate kind of life, it will be a joyful condition, and if not, not. Now, this conception of the existence of the soul independently of the body is just an assertion. It's an a priori position that well, the soul just is something that exists apart from the body. The problem is not it's existing apart from the body. The problem is how did it get in one in the first place? And how does it get out in a way that is appropriate to it? When Aristotle takes up the matter of the soul, he wants to argue, as I've indicated, and this is a presupposition to his doing metaphysics, he wants to argue that the human soul is incorruptible and consequently exists after death. But he doesn't think Plato's way of talking about that is going to work. And he creates an obstacle for himself that would seem to be insurmountable. Rather than think of the union of body and soul as kind of conjunction of two things, Aristotle wants to insist that, no, these make up one thing, one countable thing, this living thing. And the reason he's saying that is a living being is an instance of a physical being. And a physical being is a compound of matter and form. The matter and the form don't exist independently. And in a living thing, the compound, the matter and the form, can be called the body and the soul. And Aristotle uses this image. He says the union of the body and the soul is so intimate that we can liken it to the impression of the signet ring in wax. And you cannot think of the impression as existing independently of the wax. So Aristotle's definition or description of the unity of the living thing seems to make it all but impossible for him to regain the position that the human soul exists independently of the body. But yet it's against the difficulties that that recognition of the substantial unity that results from body and soul, the difficulties that that raises, Aristotle is nonetheless able to mount a proof for the incorruptibility of the soul, which is all the more convincing because it works against this obstacle. What that image makes clear is that by and large, living things, when they die, that's the end of them. And the human soul, consequently, is a great exception to that. For Aristotle, of course, soul is simply the principle of life in a living thing, so there are going to be plant souls, animal souls, and so forth. But these are not souls in the honorific sense because they simply cease to be when the animal or the plant dies. Is it possible for us philosophically to argue that the human soul doesn't simply cease to be when a human being dies? Aristotle, as I indicated earlier, will base his proof on moving off from what he's already been able to see about change and physical change generally and applying that to psychological changes, the changes involved in sensation coming to see, coming to hear, seeing those as changes, as processes. That enables him to use the language that he devised in talking about physical change, matter and form and so forth, to talk about this becoming, this coming to see red, for example, or coming to hear such and such a sound. And the question then is, is this like, is this reception of a form the same as the reception of a form in matter as in physical change in the usual sense. Well, if it were, it would have to result in another instance of the kind, another numerical instance of the kind or of the form. And that doesn't happen in sensation. When I see red again, it's not as if there's another countable instance of red in the world. 
as there is when a physical object becomes red. So this kind of reception of the form red in the sense capacity, which is taken as the subject, is distinguished from the way in which a form is received in matter. And this reception of form and matter is not like that, so the notion of an immaterial reception emerges from this comparison and contrast. That is absolutely essential to see, to see how, for Aristotle, the term immaterial is anchored in what presumably everyone would know what is initially non-problematic. And from an appeal to that, he is able to see, in terms of further analysis, do you think that seeing red produces another countable instance of red? Do you think that when I understand redness, there's another entity in the world as a result of that? The answer to those is no. And if that is the case, then we have to say, well, if we're going to use this language of a change, of a process of coming to see red, and we're going to use the language of subject and form, this is a reception of a form in a subject different from the way in which form is received in matter, immaterial then in that sense. The full sense of immateriality for Aristotle in this analysis is in thinking. When I know the kind of a thing, its redness, humanity, when I grasp the nature or essence of many individuals of the same kind. That kind of grasp, that kind of reception of a form of humanity or of redness characterizes thinking for Aristotle. A big subject, a very difficult one, but it's important to at least allude to it now so that we see that it is by way of such difficult arguments as these, and that for the prime mover that I mentioned earlier would be equally difficult. But it's on the basis of the success of arguments such as these, which are very difficult, and we're not able just on the basis of ordinary experience right off the bat to appraise them. But it's on the basis of their working that Aristotle then can say, I now have demonstrated grounds for asserting that to be and to be material are not the same thing. Therefore, if I start now to talk about having a science of being, I have reason for saying this is not simply another go at a science of physical being. This is the opening of metaphysics. So for Aristotle as that panorama that we saw at the beginning of the metaphysics indicates, as the order of learning the philosophical sciences indicates, metaphysics comes last. We've looked in this lecture at some of the difficulties that seem to arise for that view from the huge cultural advances that have been made over the course of time since the 4th century BC or from the 13th century. And it would look as if we no longer have these areas within which we could establish these proofs which make metaphysics possible. So I offered a very swift and barefoot argument on behalf of the continuing validity of a philosophy of nature in terms of the generally recognized pre-scientific knowledge which is presupposed by, continuously presupposed by scientific explanation. 
that seems to open up an area, I'm arguing, this opens up an area for the kind of analysis that we find at the outset of the natural science of Aristotle in the physics and in the De Anima, and those proofs of the prime mover and of the immortality of the soul, if they are valid, they are as valid now as they ever were, and in terms of a science which can be established without in any way questioning the advances that have been made in the physical sciences. So what I'm putting before you is this, that while there are many differences, that we would recognize in the range and scope of philosophy from the 13th century to today. What we do not have to, what we cannot assume is that metaphysics is something you can just start with. That would only be possible if we wanted to say we have immediate awareness of there being immaterial being. I think it's impossible to argue for that. Thomas certainly didn't hold that. So it's very difficult to load on to him that particular way of beginning metaphysics. But it's very difficult to see how we can retain his way of seeing it as dependent on arguments in the philosophy of nature. I've tried to give some consideration that would indicate that is possible and indeed necessary if we're going to do metaphysics. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.